0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I already mentioned this, but this is the end of a journey together in the Sermon on the Mount that started back in February. And congratulations, as I already said, to those of you who waited till now to come and get the sort of recap. He didn't have to go through all 13 weeks. You know, this is uh, two verses it would be easy to look over, right? Two verses, you hear the scripture reading, seems pretty anticlimactic. They're not even red letters. In other words, Jesus didn't even say these words. Sort of like a, a narrator of the gospel writer transitioning us. So why spend a whole week on them? I actually think if we don't stop, pause, and reflect on what these two verses are communicating, we actually... Don't understand the sermon. Or at least we'd be in danger of not understanding the sermon. Matthew gives us this gift here of these two verses to tell us how the crowds responded. Now remember, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it started with the disciples, and then now there are crowds. More people just kept coming as Jesus was preaching. The idea of responding to what someone says... When you think they have authority, which is a word we'll talk a lot about today, it's a word that Matthew uses, it reminded me of a story that I've heard about Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, and George Whitfield. Now, this particular story may be apocryphal. What I mean by that is I can't trace down the source, and I've heard it, but I've heard it a couple of times now. But one thing I do know is that Ben Franklin and George Whitfield were actually really good friends. We, we see this in Ben Franklin's autobiography. For those of you who don't know, George Whitefield was the most famous preacher, maybe the most important preacher in our country during what is called the First Great Awakening. So it was this movement in the United States of God's spirit. People were coming to Christ. There was revival all over the place. And George Whitefield traveled all over the place and was preaching. Now, the reason is so unique that Benjamin Franklin and George Whitefield were friends, in fact, biographers would say that Benjamin Franklin had two closest friends. One was his sister who they corresponded by letter a lot, and one was George Whitfield. Franklin talks a lot about how much he respects Whitfield in his autobiography. And the one story that I've heard goes like this. Maybe early on, Benjamin Franklin is leaving to go hear Whitfield preach, and someone asks him, why are you going to hear him preach? You don't even believe what he says is true. And Franklin's response is, ah, but he does. And because of that, I cannot stay away. Now, whether that's true or not, we do know that Benjamin Franklin remarked how skilled Whitfield was. And he heard him so many times, he kept coming back to him. He said he could tell when he had a newly prepared sermon or one he had preached a lot and had honed in everything. He could tell the difference because he'd heard him so much. And when we think about this, it does reveal this tension, this reality that When we encounter something that is authoritative, that moves us, we experience something. We experience a growing need to respond to this new thing that we hear, right? Maybe for you, uh, it's a powerful book or a documentary or a film or a play, or maybe a conversation you've experienced with someone that after that experience, after that conversation, you realized Things can't stay the same. Now that I know this, I must do something. Things must change. This calls for a response. Now, of course, anything we ever engage in, we're responding either by inactivity or activity. But what I'm talking about is a very intentional, concerted response that takes into account what you've just learned, what you've just heard, and thinks it through and then redirects your life, aims your life in a certain direction. And not out of fear, but out of choice, out of hope, out of a sort of new responsibility. It's been said that the relationship between knowing and doing is at the core of every examined life. I'll say that again. It's been said the relationship between what I know and what I do with what I know is at the core of every examined life. And in fact, we know that this is one of the most difficult challenges we face. That is bringing our life into alignment with what we know and with what we've been taught. It gets us to these verses of how will you respond to the sermon? Well, not my sermon, although I'd like to know that too, but particularly the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that Jesus is preaching and has preached. The challenge between knowing and doing is actually something that has become even more difficult in the age that we live in after what has been called the enlightenment. Okay, so among other things, the enlightenment has taught us that we can actually know something and it not change our lives. But the Bible would say that's impossible. Even if you don't know what the enlightenment is, you've probably heard this saying, I think, therefore... I am, goes back to a philosopher named Descartes. A lot of scholars and thinkers would say that is where the enlightenment started. And you don't have to understand everything that means, but what we do need to realize is that from that moment on, there was this addition to a view of reality that said the core of reality, the fundamental, the most real thing is what you know, or it's what you think. And it's sparked all types of atrocities in the world, actually. (laughs) Lots of good things. The Enlightenment brought lots of good things, like air conditioner and uh, science and engineering and all types of things. However, it also brought world wars. Uh, One of the most influential thinkers on this idea of the relationship between knowing and doing, for me and the people who have influenced me, go back to having been influenced by a chemist, turned philosopher of science, named Michael Polanyi. Now, he was on the track, Polanyi was, to becoming a Nobel Prize-winning chemist. The problem was, is that he looked around at the atrocities of the first world wars, and he realized that I can't witness these things, I can't know these things, and keep living the way I'm living. He's been paraphrased as saying this, the question that got into his heart and changed the very direction of his life, made him say no to a Nobel Prize path, was this. How can people be brilliant and bad at the same time? How could they have gone to our best universities and acted so horribly and so inhumanely? How dare we call this enlightenment? You see, the reality is, is the connection between what we know and what we do is at the center Of our lives. How we respond to what we know is one of the most difficult challenges that we face. But when we slow down for these two simple verses, I think it draws us to consider this relationship from a biblical perspective between knowing and doing. So, how will I respond? Or, here's another way to say it given who I am, Now that I know, what will I do? Given who I am, now that I know, what will I do? And the order is important because when we understand the scriptures, we see that God comes to us first in relationship, not duty. First in relationship. That's what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I've been arguing for. That God first comes to offer relationship to invite to relationship. Then after relationship, there's then revelation. And then, of course, there's responsibility. And we know this. That's why we say things like, I wish you wouldn't have told me that. Why? Because now that I know, I got to do something about it. And now I know too much. Right now that I know that someone, one of your friends at school is doing this I got to do something about that. I wouldn't, be a, I wouldn't be a responsible adult or parent not to do something about that. Or now that I know this is happening in my neighborhood, I have to do this. It's also why we care when someone knew something, right? Someone may do something that shocks us, that offends us, and, but we then would, the last question we ask might be, okay, but when did you know? When did you know? Did you know before you did it? And of course, if the answer is yes, then we're even more offended. At the heart of our response is this relationship between what we know and what we do. However, biblically, it starts with relationship, then to revelation, then to responsibility. Now, verses 28 and 29, I told you all of this stuff came to me from these two verses. I want to show you how, okay? I want to show you how. So verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Notice what they did not say. They did not say, that dude was crazy smart. They did not say, what a winning personality. They did not say, that dude was hilarious. They didn't say any of these things. What they said was, he spoke with authority and not like the scribes. So who were the scribes? Well, the scribes were the academics of their day, of God's law. They were the, they were the scholars. They were the people writing the books, doing the research, writing the articles. So what this, these two verses do is they invite us to reflectively review all that Jesus has said in the sermon to get us to this response. Okay, so the scribes, they were people who not only were experts in the law... But they were also lawyers. So they were kind of like law professors. They would try cases. Someone broke the Sabbath, he'd bring in the scribe because they were the scholars and they tried cases. So they were like the law professors. So if anybody was the authority on the law of Moses, which Jesus, by the way, really dabbled in in the Sermon on the Mount, it should be the scribes. But the problem was is that the scribes somehow had gotten to the point where their relationship between knowing and doing had been fractured as well. They knew a lot of things. They were even the teachers. But there is this interesting fallacy in our lives, isn't it? We think to teach is to know. Think about that. To teach is to know. You don't have to be a teacher. You can have to be a parent or a friend or community group leader. There are things that you say, and as you're saying them, you're thinking, I am so full of it right now. But other people don't know. We believe somehow that teach simply means I know. Or to know means that I obey. But the scribes somewhere along the line, over and over, had showed a break between what they knew and what they did. So while there still were the authorities for these people, something was different about Jesus. Something was different. And the way they respond is with astonishment. Now, astonishment is pretty good. I mean, astonishment isn't faith. Astonishment isn't obedience, but astonishment is a start. Astonishment is in the right trajectory, and this is why it's in the right trajectory, because they realized the point of the sermon, which is that more than what Jesus commanded or said, Jesus was making himself the focus of the sermon. He, Jesus says crazy things like this when we look back and review this. He says, I have come. Who talks like that? I mean, we may say, I was born. But he says, I have come. It's like, come from where? Nazareth? Oh, that's cool. Hicktown. That's not what he said. He said, I have come as though he came from on high. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. It's like, well, good. Nobody thought you did. Right? Remember, this is at the beginning of his ministry. I mean, what if I came up? What if I stood up here and said that? Right? What if I came up and said, hey, I just want to put everybody at ease. I haven't come to abolish the law this morning. And you'd say, well, now we're concerned, but where we weren't really before. (laughs) But then he goes on and he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. No, 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 don't be concerned. I've actually come to fulfill it. Wow, no scribe talks like that. When Jesus teaches, he says, not the Lord says, or the Lord has said, or Moses has said, he says, I say to you, there was no quoting other scribes. See, all the scribes were quoting other scribes. Like, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, this case law over here, precedents here, Moses, this, that, the other. Jesus is like, no, I say. I say to you. That's different. And by the way, Jesus doesn't just say there's a judgment. That was not concerning to them. But he says, by the way, I'm the judge. I'm not just the judge, but I am the criterion for judging as well. Jesus says... You want to know how to pray? I'll tell you how to pray. I know how to pray. Nobody else knows how to pray. I'll tell you how to pray now. Really? Jesus says, you don't want to be anxious? I'll tell you not to be, how not to be anxious. Everyone else, doesn't matter. I'll tell you how not to be anxious. Jesus says, basically, you want to be smart? You want to be happy? You want to be wise? Do what I say. Oh, you want to be dumb? You want to wreck your life? You want to live a foolish life? Then just don't do what I say. Who says that? Not the scribes. Not the scribes, they said. You see, they realize they're on the right trajectory. Jesus has made the entire sermon about himself. He's turned everything he said in such a way where he's caused everyone to realize with beyond the shadow of a doubt, he's not a normal teacher. He's not like the scribes. He actually teaches like he has authority. Like authority rests in him, not in the scriptures. And therefore, they are astonished about this. Now, some people in our day and age love the Sermon on the Mount. They might not even be Christians. And the reason that the Sermon on the Mount can be looked at in a positive light is because it's moral. Right? I mean, Jesus says we shouldn't judge people. Uh, He says we shouldn't be angry with people, that we should love our enemy. All these things are really good. But the problem is, is that you can't take the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount without taking the teacher. The Sermon on the Mount is not mainly about morality. It's about Jesus. And it's about him being at the center. So you can't get the Sermon on the Mount without being confronted by Jesus himself. So, out of all other questions in the Bible, we see when we reflectively review, overview anyway, of the Sermon on the Mount, out of all other questions we might have in the Bible, for example, what does the Bible say about creation? What does the Bible say about sexuality? What does the Bible say about hope in the future? What does the Bible say about salvation? Those are all really important questions. But the most important question that must be settled before any other question is this Who is Jesus? And maybe more specifically, does Jesus have all authority? Does Jesus have all authority? Think about that. Think about the way you answer that question is one of those realities where you say, however I answer this question, it changes everything. Nothing can be the same. If I answer no to this question, then why am I in church? Why am I here? We should like be at the restaurants that I drive past every Sunday morning with lines of people to come here, with lines of people out there on Sunday morning doing what we should be doing if Jesus does not have authority. Now, I realize some of them might go to church on Saturday night, okay? I get that. But you get my point. If we say no, why are we here? But if we say yes, then what does that mean for us? How do we respond given who we are if we're here? Are we Christians? Are we seeking? Do we, are we interested in Jesus? So given who we are, now that we know, what will we do? How will we live? How will we respond? You know, it, it matters because it'll direct how you spend your time and how you engage relationships and the way you make decisions and what you buy. And even the question that's most fundamental to all of those things, and that is who you are, your identity. You see, if Jesus has all authority, then he also has the authority to tell you who you are. And this might be the most violent thing Jesus does against our culture, is to say that I get to tell you who you are. Because you see, identity is at one of the core concerns that all of us have in this culture. What's my calling in life? How do I know what to do? Who am I? What do I want They're all really important questions, but if they're made ultimate questions, they become idols. And in fact, I think our culture has absolutized the questions of identity. But if Jesus has all authority, then he gets to tell us who we are. And by the way, isn't that what he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount when he called his disciples? He got to say, this is kingdom living. This is who you are as my disciples. Relationship revelation responsibility we don't do in order to gain relationship but being in relationship there's responsibility we know this those of us who are married know this those of us who have friendships actually real friendships we know this when you're in a relationship you're responsible in some ways you don't just get to make be your own authority that's not love that's not a real relationship and so of course it would be the same way with God Absolutely, it would be the same way. So Jesus gets to tell us who we are. And again, like I said, that is one of the primary insults our current culture could be given. Think about this. In our current culture, the self has all authority. We're told to discover our deepest desires and fulfill them. But here's a problem. Our deepest desires often contradict one another, don't they? It's like, how do we feel today? Well, it depends on what happened this morning and depends on what I ate for dinner and depends on how much sleep I got, right? All of a sudden, we're up and down with the weather. But there's, there's actually something deeper than that that is a problem with the sovereign self getting to choose our own identity. That is to say, rather than Jesus having all authority, we have all authority, right? There, there's a deeper problem than just the fact that our desires contradict one another. And uh, before we get to that, actually, I think I want to I expand a little bit of where exactly our desires oftentimes contradict one another. For example, we can think a career versus a relationship, right? We, we could really think, I want this career, and I know it's going to cause me to sacrifice these certain things, and one of them might be relationships. Or we may have the opportunity to get a promotion, make more money, and there could be great things, the way we can give, the way we can provide for our family, all of that. But one problem might be is that it causes us to travel more, which takes us actually away from one of our key values maybe, which is our family. And so we have these warring desires and the question really becomes quickly, it moves from what should I do to what gives me identity? What gives me meaning? What am I placing my hope in? Another example would be an identity based on feelings that change and are incoherent, right? So often, we don't even know how to discern how we feel. So how are we then to be able to tell ourselves who we are if we don't even know how to discern how we feel about anything? But here's the deeper problem. The deeper problem is that an identity based on expressing ourselves right, an identity based on expressing ourselves, based on how we feel, that tells us that we can't, in fact, have a true identity if we're listening to outside dictates. That's actually an illusion. Let me say it a different way. Our current culture tells us the only true identity you can find must be found from inside. Figure out who you are and go get that identity. Go get it. Work hard. Hustle. And if it's influenced by outside dictates, then it's not a true identity, it's not a real identity. You need to go deeper. That is actually an illusion. Let me, let me tell you, give you an example. One author gives this example. So imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in AD 800. Has it been a while since you've imagined that? Right? It's been a while since I've imagined that. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior AD 800. Okay? Imagine the culture that they're in. It's a shame-honor culture. It's a, it's a warrior culture. Now, this person has two warring desires, let's say. Let's say it's a man, and let's say he has two warring desires in him. There's a deep desire for aggression. That is, to respond to any disrespect to his clan or to himself with violence. Deep impulse in him. Now, what is he going to do with that impulse? Well, he's going to sift it through the cultural expectations of his shame, honor, culture, and he's going to say, yeah, yeah, that's me. That's honorable. right? I, I should crush the head of anyone who insults my family or my tribe or my whatever. Now to us, we're like, that's ridiculous. Now, he, but he has this other desire, okay? Warring within him. And this desire is for same-sex attraction. Now in a shame-honor culture, in a warrior culture, he's gonna take that desire and sift it through his cultural reality. And he's gonna say, no, 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 that's not me. And he's gonna suppress it and he's going to cover it up. Now, what if, bring it to today in downtown Orlando, or really any city today, same, same age man, let's say he has those two same desires warring in him. One is for aggression. Anytime he's uh, transgressed against, his will is thwarted, he's insulted, or his family is insulted, he has this deep impulse to yell, to scream, road rage, violence, Well, what is he going to do? Well, in most places today in Orlando, he's going to go get help for that. He's going to call that what we might say, I need anger management help. I need to figure out where this rage comes from and go see a therapist and and get this under control. I need to suppress that because that's not who I am. I'm not a person filled with hate and rage. But if the same person, the same man, has same-sex attraction, if he sifts that through the cultural expectations today, he'll say, that's me. I need to embrace that. That's who I am. So what's the difference between the Anglo-Saxon warrior shame honor culture, man, 8,800, and the man in downtown Orlando in 2017, right? Is the, if the authority's in the self, the culture shouldn't matter, but it absolutely matters. You see, it's an illusion to think that we can be our own authority. It's an illusion to think that we somehow can create our own identity on our own, apart from some voice outside of us telling us who we are. Now, I want you to know that that's a good thing. That's actually how you were made. More specifically, to be clear, you were made to receive your identity from outside of you. We were never meant to go deep inside and try to find our identity even to think that's what we should do, must mean that we believe that we have all authority. But Jesus clearly says he has all authority. Again, given who you are, now that you know, what will you do? Does Jesus have all authority? Or do you have all authority? It's important to see that the narrative messages that you surround yourself with will dictate who you think you are. For example, these two differences, the Anglo-Saxon 8800 man and the 2017 Orlando man, their authority actually came from their cultures and their communities and the heroic stories that their cultures told them. For you in your workplace, who's the hero? What type of person is the hero, right? Who are the really successful people? What kind of stories get told about that man, that woman, and this person right here, the standard in your office or maybe your industry? And we begin to take on these narrative messages and they begin to create our vision of the good life and what flourishing is. And then all of a sudden, we think, That in order for me to flourish, in order for me to be happy, I also need to take on this heroic story. I also need to become like them. So you see, it's not really the question of are you your authority or is Jesus your authority? It's really, is Jesus your authority or is the culture around you your authority? That's clearly what we all have to face. And hopefully you can see how exhausting this is if it's the culture around you. I mean, that's absolutely exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting and unstable. It's kind of what Jesus said last week. The man who tries to find his identity in the heroic stories that his culture tells him is like the man who builds his house on the sand. And when suffering comes or when there's a new uh, law or when there's new legislation, whatever it is, when there's a new president, when there's a new leader, when there's a new world event, whatever it is, in order for me to be on the right side of history, I got to change my whole identity. The very thing that I build my life on is based on the shifting sands. But then when suffering comes, when hardship comes, Jesus says the whole house falls. But the invitation to have Jesus be all authority is the invitation to build your house on the rock, which we talked about last week. So again, I'll ask, does Jesus have all authority? And this is what I want to spend the next probably five minutes talking about. The answer to the question, does Jesus have all authority, is yes. That's it, simply. It's yes. But what I want to do is I want to show you why that's such good news why that is amazingly good news that Jesus has all authority and that I don't and that you don't. So the way I want to show you this is I simply want to look back quickly and show you how Jesus uses his authority. Not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the whole Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus first comes, how does he use his authority? Well, he uses it to proclaim good news very first thing he does. And with his authority, Jesus teaches the disciples and the crowds the path to flourishing. So he uses his authority to come and tell us where we find life in flourishing. He then uses his authority to teach us how to pray. Not to say, well, you're not smart enough to pray. But rather to say, let me tell you how you can come commune with God. How you can ask for what you need. How you can ask for protection. Let me tell you that. Let me teach you how to pray. He uses his authority to heal the sick and restore the marginalized. And listen, to this, he even uses his authority to share. Matthew chapter 10, he calls the 12 disciples and it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus shares his authority. He's not a tyrant. He doesn't just call us to a new identity He gives us a new mission, to be on mission with him wherever he would send us. He shares his authority. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus shares the difference between the way he exercises his authority versus the rulers of our world, how they exercise their authority. This is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever should be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How does Jesus use his authority? Well, he gives it up. He lays his life down. He becomes a slave. He becomes a servant. That's the type of person I would like in charge. Not me. I wouldn't do that. Some, some of us are so concerned when we read the Sermon on the Mount that this is just more duty. And no matter how many times I've said, no, it's relationship, then revelation, then responsibility. You don't earn your way into relationship with Jesus. You don't follow the Sermon on the Mount in order to earn his favor. No matter how many times I say that, you still hear it as duty. And I think it's, it's, it's shame. It's, it's a realization that how often we fail. But I want to go to a place we haven't gone to in the Sermon on the Mount yet to show you that what I'm saying is true. I think it's in the Bible that relationship comes first. But also, I want to show you another thing that Jesus does with his authority. Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Jesus simply says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. There it is. Jesus has all authority. What does he do? What would you do with that authority? What would you do? What do you do with your authority? You know, as a parent of young kids, I realize that one of the ways I use my authority right now is force, power. Why? Because I'm bigger. I'm a lot bigger, right? So what I do sometimes, more than, than i like, more than i like to admit, I power up. I dare you. I don't say it like this, but it's clear. I dare you to not do what I say. Well, that'll work for now because there's six, four, and eight months. It's not gonna work forever. It's not gonna work for much longer. And does it ever actually work? Does it ever actually work? I don't think so. Maybe to instill fear. But that's not a very good motivator. Recently, I was talking with my oldest daughter in the car. She just said, Daddy, sometimes I wish I didn't have a mommy and a daddy. And I said, why? She said, because I don't like that they tell me what to do. Scarlett, my three-year-old, said, but Livy." If we didn't have a mommy and a daddy, who would reach the things that are too high for us to get? (laughs) And I said, precisely. (laughs) How do you use your power? Livy gets it. That's in my heart too. Sometimes I wish I didn't have a Lord. I wish I could be my own Lord. Then I'd ruin my own life and other people's lives. Anywhere I had authority, I'd ruin their life. I would ruin your lives. Praise God that all of our authority is derivative. And when we look to Jesus, how does he use his authority? Listen to this. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Next verse. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because Jesus has authority, we can find rest. Because Jesus used his authority to lay his life down, you can find rest. The invitation in the Sermon on the Mount is not burden. There's freedom in wholeness. There's freedom in not retaliating. There's freedom in not holding resentment. There's freedom in giving to the needy and praying and fasting, not for the applause of other people, but so that you can know Jesus more. Jesus isn't only offering us an identity and a mission. He's offering us freedom and rest. That's how he uses his authority. That's why it's amazingly good news that Jesus has all authority and that we don't. So the question again is this, in Jesus, will you come rest in him? In Jesus, will you come rest in him and be given a new identity? And then again, the question is, given who I am in Jesus, an adopted child, a brother to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Given who I am, now that I know, what will I do? The order matters. The order absolutely matters. And we'll end where Matthew ends his gospel. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For behold, I am with you always. And that's where Matthew started his gospel. The virgin shall be. Give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. It ends with God's presence, his call for relationship. It ends with his promise that he will always be with us. It's a call to rest. Come rest this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you longing to rest. Some of us don't feel rested, and we want to. We want to believe you because we see you're trustworthy. We see how you've used your power and your authority. You've used it to give life. You don't lord it over, but you serve. And we're grateful for that. The Apostle Paul reminds us that it is the Lord's kindness that draws us to repentance. So I pray for all of us as we face areas right now where we need to repent of how we've misused our authority, how we've viewed you in ways that aren't true and we've accused you in our hearts of abusing authority and using authority in ways that you haven't but in fact, you invite us to rest, not to burden. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things.